You're listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, where reporters and journalists go on the record about how they use the Internet to cover the news. For the latest trends, tips, and tactics on how the web shapes popular opinion, subscribe to our RSS news feed or visit us online at www.ipressroom.com. Chairman of the W2 Group, Larry Weber, goes on the record online. And I was just lucky because I introduced HTML in 1990. So I've been around the Internet from its birth when that language uh, developed by Tim Berners-Lee, uh, you know, went over the ARPANET to create the World Wide Web. And I've studied the uh, impact of that the last 18 years very, very closely and been that student of new media for a long time. So I think that's my perspective and my place in the PR probably hierarchy isn't just building the largest PR firm in the world, which was fun, but I think it's been a, a deep student of the changing media tide uh, that is changing more than it ever has in our lifetimes or ever will because of the web. And thank you for joining us for this episode of On the Record Online, recorded at the PRSA International Conference 2007 in Philadelphia. This is the podcast that brings you the story behind the story. We do in-depth, one-on-one interviews with journalists from the mainstream media, as well as, from time to time, discussions with bloggers, podcasters, and newsmakers about how technology is changing and threatening to disrupt the mainstream media business as we know it. My name is Eric Schwartzman. I am the Managing Director of Schwartzman & Associates. We are a Los Angeles-based PR firm specializing in entertainment, media, and technology. I am also the founder and chairman of iPressroom Corporation, which helps organizations including Target, Trend Micro, UCLA, and others extend the reach and effectiveness of their marketing and PR campaigns online using the latest new media tools and services integrated into one powerful dashboard. Today we have a one-on-one interview with Larry Weber. Uh, he built and but is no longer involved with uh, one of the largest uh, PR consortiums in the world, Weber Shanwick Worldwide. Uh, currently, he oversees as chairman W2 Group. Um, he, over the past 20 years, has provided counsel to a variety of clients on a broad range of issues and established a reputation for thoughtful, out-of-the-box thinking. Uh, Larry is widely recognized as one of the industry's foremost visionaries in applying technology to the practice of public relations. Uh, the interview with Larry uh, lasts um, almost 30 minutes. Uh, it is uh, quite, quite interesting, and we are going to play it for you entirely unedited after this. Don't be left behind. Get the latest online PR tools and services from my press room. Powerful, easy to use, available on demand. Extend your sphere of influence online with iPressroom, tools for online media centers, virtual private press rooms, RSS news feeds, podcasts, and more at www.ipressroom.com. iPressroom, always on, even when you're off. Larry Weber, thank you so much for joining us. Glad to be here. Now, yours is the namesake of one of the largest agencies in the world. Yep. How did you start and how did you manage to achieve the level of success that you did? Well, um, part of it's serendipity. I mean, I happened to be in Boston in when, uh, the early 80s when really it was pre-Silicon Valley's uh, you know, um, time uh, for the beginning of the technology revolution in computing. And 
I sort of fell into representing uh, an early software company called Lotus and uh, soon realized that the technology market was going to be rather large and also that the current PR at that time, 1983-4, the current PR um, services were very general. Uh, so the largest agencies in this country at the time were, um, you know, Burson Mars, Stellar, Edelman, Hill & Knowlton. Uh, Fleshman Hillard were very, they weren't domain specific. They were much, you know, we know how to write releases and no matter your industry. And that, ch what changed was that technology said, wait a minute, this is much deeper. We need people that understand what software is. And so I said, you know, let's, let's start a, a PR firm that just focuses on technology. And that, of course, was the Weber Group, which was, um, it's always interesting to, to look back, but it was the fourth. Uh, technology PR agency uh, in the country, and by 2000, we had 9,000 technology PR firms. But the Weber Group grew to be the largest high-tech PR firm in the world by 1990. And uh, you know, I uh, we were we had introduced companies uh, like uh, SAP, Monster, AOL, um, etc., and. Uh, Things were rolling along quite well, and 1996 came along, and all the uh, holding companies of ad agencies, WPP, Omnicom, Interpublic, all came knocking on the door and said, I, I, I guess we've run out of buying advertising companies. We want to buy PR firms. So I had a vision for how you could build a larger PR firm around the world, uh, which is today Weber Shamwick. And the basic concept was to find deep domain expertise in all industry categories, so entertainment. Uh, we went and looked and got Rogers and Cowan and uh, uh, Bragman, Nyman, Caffarelli and Pat Kingsley and uh, Kevin Huvain, uh in entertainment. We looked at healthcare. We bought a number there. So the, the concept was very simple, really, when you think about it. It was go deep in domains and then by geographic regions that complement each of those domains and then have a differentiation because all the biggest firms in the world came out of one core competency. So Hill & Knowlton was a public affairs originally. Uh, Fleshman Hillard was consumer. I said there's nobody using technology to better communicate in the public relations business. So the idea was to have a top five PR firm very quickly, which I did in three years. We bought 21 companies around the world, and that's, again, today Weber Shamwick's 5,000 people, um, probably about 500 million in fees. And uh, I stayed with them through 2000. Two, three, uh, after my earn out and was having fun, but I still felt I had one more thing in me. So that's what I'm doing now with uh, the W2 group. So walk us through the shift from account work to management, because I have to think when you got started, you probably fell in love with the practice of PR. And then as the company grew, I would imagine you had to get away from account work and yeah. more towards mergers and acquisitions. And um, both, both you know, refreshing, but also frustrating, too, at that point. It's no different than other professional services like law or accounting, where there's a number of people that are really good at the practices, but once you have to start operating or sort of managing businesses, you're in a whole different kind of orientation. What I like to do is um, I was always very good at, at identifying good talent and hiring, so I hired a lot of really good operators to do a lot of the matrixed operation around uh, internationally, so that I could focus on the content of the business, and uh, you know, and 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 giving advice to CEO 
CEOs on uh, their company's position and their products and and so forth. So, uh, you know, I was I was always had my finger on the operations, but I tried to find, uh, you know, a group of people that could do that better uh, than I, so I could stay focused on the content and on uh, recruiting real talent. Because at the end of the day. Uh, especially in professional services, you need the best people if you're going to win the accounts. And obviously, that's a huge challenge. Yeah. So you must you must be good at it because you were able to grow the company, and you can't win business and hand it off to a team that can't well, keep the business happy. The, the the difficult thing is building culture, especially you know you know I can't hide it. What Weber Shandwick was was a roll up. I mean, I was buying other cultures. So you know how do you how do you start to integrate that kind of thing without it falling apart? And my concept was I, they used to make fun of me when I was acquiring. I had what was called the three dinner rule, and the three dinner rule was I never talked numbers with the people whose firms I wanted to buy. I got to know them. What they liked what they didn't like what their talents were uh i got to know them as people you know what their families were like um you know what turned them on what turned them off and if if we could get to that sort of through that third dinner then we got the finance people and the lawyers involved to start moving also i consistently was a transparent leader which i think is important that's what my first book was about the provocateur was about leaders that create communities uh and uh you know you it's not about building a company it's about building a community and the idea of using technology better than anyone else to communicate being best at a domain specific so you're the best entertainment firm you're the best high-tech firm you're the best healthcare firm you know um those were all my rule of thumb and uh and it seemed to work so. but before you got there in order to arrive at a place where you were even in a position to be able to buy these firms you had to grow your own firm correct so what traits did you look for and rank them for us in order of importance when you were hiring people. Yeah, the most important when I hired people was analytical thinking. And I would always ask them about what books they were reading. If they weren't reading any books, I had trouble hiring them. Uh, you know, do they think outside the box a bit? Also, I wanted people that weren't salespeople because uh, I, I realized very quickly that I was pretty good at getting accounts. And um, so I, I, there's a little story. My mother was a little frustrated at me back then because uh, she said, how, how are you being so successful with your firm, Larry? And I said, well, Mom... I really did some self-critical uh, analyzing, and I said, you know what? I'm really good at selling and helping clients, uh, and I'm not going to work on the other stuff. And she goes, oh, you, you should be more well-rounded. I said, no, I'm not. I'm going to focus on that, and I'm going to hire people that are very competent in account management and at, um, at building accounts and not selling. So we all of a sudden, we got the sort of reputation of being the, the company where you could just do your work. You weren't under this pressure to get more business, to you know, to, to get the next account. And I would tell people, I'll take care of that. You just keep who we have happy and, you know, do the qu best quality work you can. And so that's what I would look for. So you, you, did you ever have outside funding for your agency? Not the first firm. I did everything bootstrap and, uh, and we grew it to well over 20 million within, uh, you know, what was it, eight years? Uh, and it just was, we caught the tide of an industry, you know, that was, uh, 
that uh, you know looked for public relations as its first marketing device, and that was technology. And but but if you're out there selling accounts and they're buying into you essentially, yep. and then you're handing it off to an account team, yep. now how do you effectively grow a headcount uh, to meet agency demand without losing sight of client deliverables? Well, I think that's a very good question. I mean, you know, the first thing is is to be always accessible to the client, which I always was, you know, but I was also very open and honest up front. I would say, these are the people that are going to do the work every day. I'll help with some direction and things, but you don't actually want me working on your account because I'm actually sort of sloppy around the edges. And, you know, you want the day-to-day people that are really going to get these things done. I also, which is hard to believe, but PR never worked really from deep plans and deep, deeply organized plans. So once we won an account, I said, okay, that was the romance and the selling. Let's work on a specific 12-month plan that is very specific down to the tactical details so we know what's happening and we can be measured very clearly so that it doesn't matter that I'm involved every day. Well, in the PR business, and certainly it's becoming less the case now, but I have to think when you were building your agency, media relations and, and getting media coverage was one of the ways that your effectiveness was, was, was evaluated. So if that's the case, and if we, at the end of the day, don't control what the media says and, and how they say it or whether they say it at all, what do you do if you're not getting the ink? Well, the real issue is the way you approach getting the ink. And now, like in my second book, Marketing to the Social Web, how you get digital media to cover you, um, is really understanding third-party content. And uh, it was amazing to me how many people in the PR industry just went directly to journalists and tried to sell them on a story. And where I learned early in the tech business that there were these things, companies called Forrester and Gartner, and there were people that you wanted to go influence that they would talk to the press. So example, we would find out from the Wall Street Journal, uh, and he's still there, a guy named Bill Buckley, who... uh, you know, writes uh, on technology for almost 30 years, you could make a graph of his last 12 articles and you saw that he asked this one woman from Forrester 15 times about her opinion about software, but only asked the person from Gartner once. So, gee, if you're a PR person and you're trying to get your software account, you know, some ink with Bill Buckley, you better go, you know, learn and have a relationship with the woman from Forrester. So it was it was the process of learning, you know, really the leverage points around media. And you could usually pretty much getting the second point would be creativity in your angle all right and not giving up until you understood you know you know maybe this isn't a boring story if we put it in a different context if we show a, a, a customer uses the product or you know that maybe uh you know i remember one of the boring software products it turns out it was uh you know was one of the uh the ability to uh to animate uh, better than any animation had done before so that Disney was all over this technology. Well, the second we found that out, it was a much easier story to tell and we had a lot of media interested. So I think creativity is the sort of the, the, the other uh, component of a one-two punch for more publicity. You know? If I uh, was working for you and I was having difficulty with a client and I came to you and I said, uh, Larry, help me manage this client's expectations, what words of wisdom would you give me well i would first of all i would uh, try to analyze the the playing field are we being fair to the client you know i always would look at the competitive set i'd always say are we really looking at 
how their competitors are doing. Uh, are we doing enough creative things about that? Then I'd assess if the client themselves was being fair because I would always push back. I was never the kind of yes guy, you know, to the clients just to keep an account. If uh, I felt there was just nothing else we could do, I'd say, let's admit it. You know, and if there's no story here, if they're number four in their category and they have lousy products, you know, maybe we shouldn't be working with them. Uh, so I would try to size, you know, it up completely, give every possible creative thing. But I always wanted to only work for the number one or two in a category uh, because that's where thought leadership lies and it makes results a lot easier. At the end of the day, what's more important, the deliverables or the relationship? The deliverables. Uh, and uh, I always held that. And that's why if I disappeared and didn't golf with the client, it didn't matter because I hold relationships are important. But if you're not getting the high quality results, I mean, it's much like professional sports, right? You can love the player, but if they're not performing, it just doesn't you're not going to keep them. And, you know, they're going to end up in another team. So uh, the, everybody has to perform. You've got to get the, the, the quality down uh, or you just move on. So it's not the relationship. That's important. But ultimately, it's the results, the quality of the work. That's, that's what drives all success in professional services. If you compare the amount of money clients spend on advertising versus PR, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's... That's going to shift in the next three years. This year alone, we'll spend $110 billion on broadcast television in the United States alone. PR, probably in this country, $7 billion in fees, maybe $6.5 billion in fees. So a huge disparity, correct? But as social media takes over, as e-communities, as blog sphere self-edits, um, you know, as uh, reputation aggregators like Google... MSN uh, grow in their, e in their influence, Yahoo, you're going to see shifts of those television dollars because uh, at, at, at its worst um, uh, analytic, AdAge said a quarter of that $110 billion will be DVR'd or TiVo'd uh, if you use that service. So to go into a CEO and go, we flushed $25, $30 billion we don't know where it went because nobody watched the ads. There's no way. Why wouldn't you start building communities? Why wouldn't you start reaching out to digital media? So I think there's going to be a much bigger shift of taking those budgets and moving them to PR slash social media, building of customer communities, and I think it's going to be an exciting time uh, for a shift in marketing focus. So you are privy at the highest levels to business leaders of category leaders. Mm -hmm. But in the trenches, how, how, uh, how important do you think businesses, the business community as a whole, thinks social media is at this point? Are we just waking up? And if we were to, gra if we were to draw a curve, are we at the top of the, of the curve? Uh, are we on our way up? We're just at the beginning, and it's first generation. So, you know, I liken it in my speeches on my book. Uh, I liken it to the, the first years of television advertising in the 1950s where all you did was you, a guy held up a box of soap and said, this gets your clothes whiter. And that was it. Okay, so we're at the very beginning of understanding the social media landscape of which networks are being built, uh, you, know, you know, where the conversations are being had. I mean, Nikon cameras didn't know until they went on Flickr to, to realize that there were over 40,000 people 
that love Nikon and were talking about how the cameras were were, were so important to their lives and in, in building their f- f- photography portfolios, and so they went and started you know including themselves in the conversations, and now it's over f- you know four million people. So this is more and more companies like IBM are embracing Visa International, Cisco, Sun, uh, Microsoft, uh, Google. Uh, you know, uh, you know, and, and again, it's just the beginning. But as the fourth era of the web uh, comes upon us uh, early next year, which is the marriage of broadband and uh, rich media, you're going to have a web that's the closest thing to physical life, and that'll get these uh, these companies' attention because uh, you've got the customers are in charge, the companies aren't in charge anymore. So instinctively, in, in, in many cases, marketers want to market. They want to sell. Yep. And we know that there's a, a real difference between advertising and editorial content. <laughs> if you had a television station or a radio program that was all ads, nobody would listen. Um, so how do you help a client if they want to be active in, in social media and new media? How do you help a client resist the temptation to shell? Well, the most important thing is to understand the role that paid media is evolving to, and that would be buying of advertising, or whether it be online or offline. The role of paid media increasingly will be to get us to a digital destination. Even the Super Bowl last year, two-thirds of the ads had no content to them. They were to get you to monster.com or they were to get you to you know gm.com uh you know that kind of motivation so understanding the the difference between the role of paid media in the future and unpaid media or the development of content what we're doing right now is what companies have to do they have to build interesting and thoughtful podcasts that are easily downloadable that can be listened to video cast webinars webisodes wikis uh you know on and on to understand how at its true essence now marketing's moving back to where it should have been for the whole broadcast era which is the creation of content to influence opinion and that's what PR people do best so understanding those differences and where we're going is going to be critical so if, if you take this idea of interrupting people with a commercial and then taking them to the web to fulfill does that mean that the sales funnel leads you to a transaction and that transaction in and of itself is entertaining yeah I think that's part of it but also I'm glad you used the word transaction because what's happening is the web for the last 12 years and the advent of the browser had a transactional interface what's happening now is the advent of social media is that you've got to create an interface that's more inviting more thoughtful more user generated much like going into your favorite store you go in you're not sure what you're going to buy you go in and walk around, look at what the new things are, and then you buy something. So transactions happen you know, after you're feeling comfortable in an environment. The job of marketers in the future is to aggregate people and create environments that are easy to transact. So the practice of media relations, dealing with journalists, there is order at a newspaper. There's editorial oversight. There's letters to the editor. In some cases, there's an ombudsman. There is a professional procedure by which articles are written and fact-checked and copy-edited and printed. And so as media relations professionals, there's been a way that we communicated with those people based on logic and analytics and 
creating a good story. Now we're moving to the web, and people say it's the collective wisdom of the crowd, but that could also be called anarchy. Uh-huh. And the anarchy is something that is often um, circumvented and perverted by demagogues. Mm-hmm. So are we now becoming demagogues? Is that what we're going to have to learn to do to be successful? No. What, what's happening is we're going to have to self-edit like what's going on. You know, Everybody's media, and we're going to have to admit that. Newspapers in this country have gone down in circulation 13 years in a row. There's going to We have half the print uh, magazines... We we had five years ago. Television's being eaten by the internet right now. Uh, we've got to understand that media is going to be a, a cooperative thing. Also, you talk about fact-checking. You know, most companies have gotten rid of fact-checking. They can't afford it anymore. So who do you want to trust? One journalist? Or do you want to trust four million people from Boing Boing who are checking and making sure things are accurate? You know, even though it has a regrettable name like Boing Boing. All right. But, uh, you know, so I think it's just understanding that new landscape. And um, there's a generation that has never read a newspaper. Paper. So as PR professionals, we're going to have to understand where people are getting their news and how they're being influenced, uh, you know, before we, uh, you know, go try to engage in, uh, in, in, in the, the type of content uh, that's going to change opinion. Well, certainly uh, the idea of delivering news on newsprint is out of favor. But don't you think that newspapers ultimately, uh, organizations that gather news and have processes and procedures uh, might someday become back in favor as a result of all the uncredible information that exists on the web? I think a bit they will, but I think it's going to be more like sites like Dig. Uh, which actually, you know, aggregate the news and then everybody votes on what the b- more important stories are and then more and more people read them very quickly. So I actually think it's going to be more like that than it's going to be traditional, uh, you know, models of, of journalism. And uh, I'm very frustrated as I go to some of the top journalism schools uh, that they're still teaching the old way of, uh, of organizing around uh, uh, certain journalistic principles were, that were done in the broadcast era and not the era of interactivity. So you believe that social media, the collective wisdom of the crowd, can effectively serve the needs of the fourth estate? Totally. Completely. And uh, read my book, Marketing to the Social Web, if you don't believe me. <laughs> F- final question. Um, I've been fortunate enough to interview some of your peers, uh, Harold Burson, Al Golan, and and Howard Bragman, for this podcast. And uh, certainly there are other accomplished PR experts like yourself out there. Uh, With all due respect, what, if anything, can you say that they can't? Probably the only thing, and of course you you mentioned some wonderful people there. I mean... uh, Harold has always been supportive of what I've tried to do, and I obviously bought Howard's company. He has a new one now. It's doing very well. And, uh, and of course, Sweet Al was Ernest Hemingway's PR guy. So, uh, you know, you go. But, you know, I bring a different view than, than almost most of these people. And I was just lucky because I introduced HTML in 1990. So I've been around the Internet from its birth when that language developed by Tim Berners-Lee uh, you know, went over the ARPANET to create the World Wide Web. And I've studied the uh, impact of that the last 18 years very, very closely and been that student of new media for a long time. So I think that's my perspective and my place in the PR. Probably hierarchy isn't just building the largest PR firm in the world, which was fun, but I think it's been a, a deep student of the changing media tide uh, that is changing more than it ever has in our lifetimes or ever will because of the web. Larry Weber, thank you so much for joining us. It was wonderful. Thanks. 
You've been listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, where reporters and journalists go on the record about how they use the web to cover the news. For the latest trends, tips, and tactics on how the web impacts corporate reputations, subscribe to our RSS news feed or visit us online at www.ipressroom.com. 